You're listening to the Cannabis Investing Network. Before we begin, a short disclaimer. The full disclaimer follows at the end of this episode. This podcast is a general communication and is being provided for entertainment and information purposes only. It is educational in nature and is not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment strategy, plan, feature, or other purpose. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello and welcome back to the Cannabis Investing Network podcast. My name is Manish, and today we have a very special guest joining us, Frank Perullo from Ascend. He is the co-founder, the president, and the chief strategy officer. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. And, and did I get all your titles? Did I miss anything? Um, yeah, no, you, you have them all. I'm still trying to, uh, to add a couple more. Before yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't have enough, I think. Right. Oh my Lord. Yeah. Fun. It's cannabis. So, uh, I, I expect to, to get, garner more as we get up, go on. Right. Right. Wearing a lot of hats. Right. So, so Frank, first of all, thank you for joining us. And I think it would be great. Um, just if, very quickly, if you don't mind just telling people a little bit about who you are and, um, you know, what you do at Ascend. Sure. Um, well, at Ascend, um, you know, I run the day-to-day business, um, trying to ensure that each of the operating business units um, are healthy, are profitable, and our employees are, um, you know, happy and contributing productively to the company. Um, you know, my background uh, comes out of government affairs, public affairs, and campaigns. Um, so I, I had a, a company um, that took me through those various routes and led me to cannabis as Massachusetts was um, legalizing, at least medical at the time, um, cannabis in 2012 and 13 as the market uh, just started. Um, so I, I felt this cannabis was uh, the next big thing. It's something that was uh, very personal to me and something that I was excited about. So um, I started a consulting practice centered around getting cannabis businesses up and running. And before that, so we're talking like 10 years ago now, right? So, you know, crazy to think about how long it's been. But um, before cannabis, what specifically on the regulatory side were you doing? Was there something involving casinos? Sure. Um, Yeah. I mean, casinos, a lot of tightly regulated industries, politics, elections, uh, advocacy groups, ballot questions, you know, lots of things that uh, always culminated in some event, whether that was a bill passing, bill signing or uh, a ballot question trying to uh, to achieve their uh, their victory and and, and move, uh, you know, the will of the people to uh, to law. Got it. Okay, so a lot on the regulatory side, basically, in many shapes and forms. Yeah, exactly. And so what was it at the beginning, now talking, you know, back to the early days of, of mass, the mass program, um, what was it about cannabis particularly that kind of got your attention? Um, I mean, beyond my personal love of cannabis, it was no one else was really doing it. Okay. Um, it was kind of talked about in hushed tones and not many <laughs> right, of right. the, it's true, not many of the, you know, I would say the, uh, more established lobbying and public affairs groups would touch it. Um, so I, I was excited to, and I thought that it was a great opportunity to do things that we had already been doing, uh, land use, public affairs, um, licensing for various different businesses, but now take all those skills mm-hmm. and they're 
all needed for a cannabis company to try and get open in Massachusetts, which set the bar really high in terms of uh, local control as well as state licensing. So two really tough things to try and get a business up and running. Um, so we focused a, a whole business model on on helping people uh, get through that process. So, so let's talk about that a little bit, right? Because I think maybe from the outside looking in, investors might not appreciate how hard the regulatory side of the business can be, right? And especially mass has proven to be, you know, maybe the toughest um, state, especially unlimited license state. So can you talk about, you know, why is it so hard, right? Why, why can't I just sort of walk in, file an application, um, get approved, and then open a bunch of stores and grow? Yeah, the dream. Um, <laughs> it's, it, there's always barriers. Um, okay. It's not just the forms you have to fill out, the expertise you must have, the financial uh, wherewithal and resources uh, you must be able to obtain. It's can I get a property? Can I talk to a property owner who will return my calls? Mm -hmm. um, can I get financing of any which way sort of type? So you, you have all these uh, local barriers to get just to the application. And, and that's if you look at the markets that have done the opposite. So Oklahoma, mm -hmm. give us what you're trying to do. We won't put anything in your way and you can be licensed, then go ahead and go open and operate. In some of these other states, you need a site. You need a site that is then ready to be built out. You need uh, enough capital to prove that you can do that. Um, Mass and other states, you know, they wanted the barrier of entry to be difficult because they were trying to self-select or the process to self-select only the best. Right. And, and uh, the, the process itself is very difficult and it weeds out a lot of people, right? So going back to sort of the regulatory and the real estate side that you touched on, right? One of Ascend's foundational uh, ideas has been the idea of doing these mega stores, a flagship retail, right? And, and that I think Ascend was the first company I ever heard talk about that. So I, I guess, look, why is flagship retail so hard? I mean, why can't everybody look at the best streets and the best retail in Boston and say, Hey, I'm going to open a store there. I think when Abner and I met and started to think about, uh, ascend, it was around my conversations with him that really, you know, it's where we both found the commonality. It was, I wasn't settling for in the industrial areas, in the commercial areas, as a consultant working with companies to help site spots. I was looking for Maine in Maine. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be near the Starbucks, near a Target, um, plenty of parking, high visibility. And of course, you know, Abner's understanding of where this market would eventually go and, and how to allocate capital, that made sense, which is why I think both of us for the long term, creating a company with with big value to be able to handle the different market pressures is where are you going to sell this product uh, in a normalized retail market when there are plenty of stores and there's not uh, a limited amount is you best have the best locations in the best traditional retail locations, which is what we sought out to do. And what I just want to kind of dig in on what you just said, right, about the idea that in the in the early days of the markets, um, and I've, you know, you sometimes hear Ascend talk about the idea of a second mover advantage, right? Um, and the first movers, when they come into these markets, sometimes the barriers of entry are so high that they sort of get pushed into these peripheral, 
B, C type locations, some of which are, are not even retail, right? They're industrial and they end up in these industrial parks because not because they're, they're where you want to be, but because that's the easiest place to get approvals and your neighbors aren't putting up a big fight um, and, and maybe the owner is a little more easy to work with. Uh, and then as these markets mature and more doors open, 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 those first gen sites really uh, are at a disadvantage, right? Because they don't have all the traditional things of retail. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, we have a little bit of a second mover's advantage. We, you know, started to send after that first wave of some of these uh, medical and soon to be moving towards adult use states uh, were enacting their regulation. And like everyone else understands after a couple of years of medical, the world's not going to end. There is not any more crime coming to your neighborhood. Right. In fact, the opposite of true. They uh, medical dispensaries have proven to clean, help clean up neighborhoods. Uh, mm -hmm. Real estate values have gone up in areas where uh, cannabis has been welcomed. Mm. And and then we, of course, were pushing the envelope with, well, how about here and how about here and helping identify some zones that um, we thought were just good classic retail zones where we could uh, cite a dispensary. Now, if so, going back to you know what you were saying in the early days of starting your practice, did it make sense in let's say 2012, 2013 for in, in I think it was just a med market at that point, right? No rec for mass. That's correct. Yes. Would it make sense for somebody to to get a you know a premium location store at Maine and Maine um, if, if it was a a med market that just wasn't going to have necessarily that high of sales? Um, I mean. Uh... Yeah, it, it, it is. It's a medical product still services um, hundreds and hundreds of patients uh, on a week or month end basis. You, you want to be, I mean, CVS doesn't locate in a commercial or manufacturing zone. Why sure. would you? Um, and this product is, um, you know, you can refer to it as uh, behind the counter and, and in front of the counter or uh, everyday use for wellness. So, you know, that that's the way we thought of it. And some stores got it right. Uh, you look at the Netta location, one of the first open in Massachusetts, medical only. It's right on Route 9, right on a major thoroughfare um, outside of a major square in, uh, in the Boston area. Got it. Got it. So, so going back to when you started your consultancy practice, uh, just take us back and, and paint a little bit of a picture for us. Like, What was it like back in the day? Who were the players? You know, What was the, the feeling and the thinking um, that people were kind of coming into the market with? Um, it, very interesting. I, I had two sets of clients okay. primarily, and I very lovingly referred to as the, you know, the finance guys uh -huh. and the gray and black market guys. Okay. Um, so people who came from more traditional, um, cannabis lifestyle and some of the folks that were looking at the opportunity from a financial standpoint, and by the way, maybe appreciated cannabis or not, but certainly saw the, um, you know, your pro forma and said, wow, this is a great business and uh, we can take advantage of something here and open a good business. So it was legacy operators and financial people and, uh, you know, legacy people have experience with the plant, maybe a love for the plant, finance people, maybe more mixed, right? And what what were you seeing the difference between these these two groups and what were you mostly working on back then? Yeah, I mean, we were working for, again, we were working for both. So there was mom and pops trying to open up the the one store. There were the finance groups that were really putting together a business going for the full vertical and trying to capture as much of the early market as they could. 
Um, but it, you know, the love for the plant, certainly on, on the mom and pops and, and trying to get medical to more people was, was I think a big driving force for us mm-hmm. to open up the practice and, and try to get, you know, more stores open and more availability of the product. It was, uh, it was, it took a long time for some of these states to get going. And, you know, you see some of these other states in Illinois, New Jersey, for instance, that had medical programs for years, but mm-hmm. they were underfunded, undermanaged, and, you know, essentially uh, not really active for, for many, many years. And so who were some of the uh, bigger clients who you worked for in the early days? Uh, sure. Um, so companies from Ianthus, Acreage, um, Tilt, um, GTI, you, you, pretty much most of the, um, top now top MSOs were companies that, uh, my consulting firm did business with. Got it. And can you walk us through what it was like in mass in those early days? Because it, it sounds like it was a very slow and tough process. Yeah, it was a, it was a local controlled process. So the control was put with, uh, the municipalities. Okay. Whether it was the city of Boston or the town uh, of Fitch, of Topsfield, or, or you name it, right? Mm-hmm. Three hundred and fifty-one different communities in Massachusetts. So there were there were a number of uh, local battles. And when we first started, I, most of the towns were aimed were towards banning. They did not want it in their their town. You had to try to identify a friendly town. Maybe they had a, a commercial district, and the real estate was the name of the game. Okay. Because it was local control and because they were putting a, um, I don't want to say restrictive, but their zoning was certainly aimed at limiting the amount of stores that people could open. And they were trying to put it in places that were very deliberate of part of the towns. Um, So the real estate became the whole game. How much were you willing to pay and how, uh, you know, how persistent were you going to be with the owners who had the real estate? in the areas where, you know, we thought the zoning would be uh, beneficial. Just to kind of put these pieces together, you got to find a municipality that actually will allow it, right? Then you got to go in and look at the zoning rules and the zoning rules are, are, it sounds like intentionally done to be restrictive. So there's only certain areas or certain properties that will even be a good fit for, it will allow basically cannabis dispensary use. Um, And then within that subset of properties, you actually have to go you know, find what space is available, who's willing to work with me, you know, uh, you know, they're, they're, uh, the landlord might be interested, but maybe their bank won't allow them to do it, right? So when you kind of go through all this, are, are you left with a pretty small list of places you can actually go to? Uh, absolutely. And I'll just throw one more, one more item in there, which is, uh, which is one that caught up a lot of folks. Buffer zone to places where children commonly congregate or a school. <laughs> So that, that was one that Massachusetts has uh, enacted. Uh, they did enact with their medical. It was ch- where children would commonly congregate. So dance schools, you could perceive it to be a toy store. And oh ice my God. Cream. It was, it was um, of, of course, it was vague for a reason. Municipalities uh-huh. took advantage of that uh, and uh, put up a lot of fights for, uh, you name it. They, they said children commonly congregate there. But that was, you know, you, you start to overlay the zoning and where residences are and where children commonly congregate in dense places like Somerville and Cambridge, uh, which uh, with, with a lot of schools, it was almost impossible to cite. 
Got it. So it became, you know, it really is a, a challenge just to find that that site that actually works, right? And all the pieces have to line up. And when you say the municipalities were fighting it, I mean, it's a little bit of an understatement, right? I've, I've heard stories of people going to a, uh, like a local, you know, planning meeting or whatever to try to get approval. And there's like a whole room full of angry residents who show up to to argue and, uh, you know, they have, you know, they, they have their whole debate and all that. And then this guy told me they followed him out to his car, <laughs> basically. And, and like, we're like, you're not putting a dispensary in our town. Yeah. NIMBY is, was, is alive and well in the cannabis industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, not in my backyard, folks, who, who, by the way, for most things, right, whether it's development, um, mixed, residential, they always come out. That's, that's the issue. The no's are always there. They're always loud. The yeses are there. You just got to go find them. They're busy, you know, picking up their kids from sports or going to work or whatever. They, they're they busy living their lives. The NIMBYs, mm-hmm. this is their life, saying no, <laughs> saying no to things in their backyard. Right, right, exactly. So they're, they're definitely going to be at the meeting. But the people who are in favor of it, why are they going to show up, right? I mean, what are they, That's you know. Right. Uh, so just talk for a second about how does a place like Mass compare to a state like New Jersey or Illinois or New York? Like what differences do you kind of see between these states in, in how uh, easy or hard it is to open up a store? Yeah, New Jersey and Mass are very similar in that the local controls are, are uh, robust. Um, in New Jersey, you needed a local uh, zoning ordinance as well as a local resolution supporting your efforts to be a um, adult use retailer. Um, so New Jersey did, you know, did a structure that was very similar in that you needed state licensing, you needed a location that was appropriate and local support. Um, New Jersey, we're in northern New Jersey, that might exacerbate it a bit, but real estate for our grow and our retail was among the hardest real estate locations that we had to hunt for. Hmm. Um, highly competitive. The Amazon effect was driving prices up for industrial space. Um, obviously, northern New Jersey's quite dense. It's close to Manhattan. So the the real estate for retail was extremely competitive. So Mass and New Jersey, for example, probably a little more similar than some of the other states. Yeah. The, the Midwest, you get, um, there's more sprawl. Uh, there's, you know, more, I think, places where there's the pads with uh, 3,000 square foot box and 40, 50, 60 parking spots mm-hmm. um, in commercial areas. You know, commercial and residential areas in northern New Jersey and Massachusetts are often right on top of one another. So Got it. Um, I think in the Midwest, we had uh, a lot more luck and uh, ease finding locations just due to the geography. Got it. Okay. So so to go back now, you're a consultant in Mass. You're working with different companies, um, helping them, you know, get licensed or get locations or whatever it is. So when do, does Ascend come into the picture? When do you meet Abner? Tell us how that all goes down. Yeah. So 2018, he's uh, doing his due diligence on his funds investments and uh, I am consulting for a company and um, we start talking and um, I, I lo- it's classic Abner. He asked me a question. So what do you do for the company? As if he's talking to a representative of the company because he's investing in the company and the company should absolutely be putting you know, a full-time, probably C-suite employee for this large of an investment. Okay. And I say, and I, I say I'm not, I don't work for the company. I'm a consultant. And, you know, you could just hear in his mind, like, I guess I'm not going to invest with these guys. They put a consultant in front of an investor. 
Okay. Uh, um, and, but we start talking uh, about the industry in general and, and realize that, you know, we're both uh, looking at the industry as an opportunity together uh, and see, you know, see the same thing in front of us. A few too many breakfasts and coffees after that, we, we decide to, uh, that we could create a better operating company than his investments in my clients. Got it. And what's the, you know, I think people have gotten to know Abner pretty well now, right? And, and obviously, um, I think a very gifted investor and, and gets, you know, delivers a lot of clarity on the markets, um, the way he, he thinks about them, right? What, what, what's the sort of complementary skill set between you guys that you felt like, yeah, we could really do this? Abner's discipline and honesty. And that's honesty within our organization, whether it was just me and him, just of what was going to happen and what we needed to do gave me a very, it, it was a very focused goal mm-hmm. of let's get the best assets and let's turn them on as quickly as we can. There's a lot of other things to focus on, but you clearly can do that. I clearly can raise capital. If we're able to execute, um, we will be successful. So, you know, what I had seen, frankly, from some of the the companies at this time, which was 2017, 18, mm-hmm. they were slow. They were getting bigger. They were getting slower. They were not able to execute as quickly. And, um, you know, every day and month that those doors aren't open, you're all you're doing is burning cash. Mm-hmm. You're burning investor cash, which at that time, if you'll remember, uh, was probably flowing a lot freer than it was a year later. Yeah, uh, sounds, sounds familiar. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so for us, it was how quickly can we execute? And, you know, I look back now, it's four years later, um, but we were able to get to a certain size and scale, uh, that, you know, a lot of other companies took five, six, seven, eight years to get to. And and so, you know, going to what you're talking about, right. There's two things there. There's, there's the entrepreneurial drive, right. Which is the hard part to stay lean, to stay focused, um, and, and to be able to actually execute. And back then, 18, 19, the companies were getting rewarded for putting pins on the map, right? Right, becoming MSOs, and that was when that fir- name first really started getting cachet, I think. And you know, MedMen was kind of the perfect example of that, right? Putting, having, we're going to have the shiniest retail locations across the country and be the biggest retail brand nationwide. We're going to run, you know, an ad during the Super Bowl, um, and and every, you know, that's the brand equity that we're building, right? So that was the, I think, maybe poster child of of everything that ended up you know, going the other way. Um, but, but to your point, you know, when you guys started, it was really focused, right? I mean, was it, was it, when you just started, was the idea just to open, uh, in mass or like how did, how did that kind of strategy come together? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the, the thought was we'll build a great little business in mass. Um, uh, it'll be worth a lot of money. We'll have a lot of fun hiring lots of people and, <laughs> uh, we'll just, you know, we'll stick to mass. Um, and then of course, you know, an opportunity arose out of another state in Illinois and, and then off we go. Uh, So, so sorry, just going to back to mass, was it, uh, the crux was the friend street location in downtown Boston, right? Yeah, that was, I mean, that was the first location that I had introduced Abner's, uh, Abner to saying, this is where we can start. This is our first retail location in mass. Um, and by the way, it wasn't permitted. Uh, I don't think the zoning was necessarily 100% correct, right? There was still a special permit. There was a lot of, uh, of work to do, but the location was, was excellent. And I was, uh, I guess, convincing. So that was, what, uh, that was what started the company. And so, so why is that location so good? It's, it's, it's on a street in an area that I think has been, since the state and city 
you know, took down a bunch of the residences there back in, I believe, the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been an area that, you know, cent- is centered around the Boston Garden, right? So it's centered around a great location to go watch a Bruins or Celtics game, but they, they, they moved uh, residences to make room for a highway. Um, and the highway is now gone. So they hmm. took that down with the big dig. And so all of a sudden you have this neighborhood where residences are coming back. The streets are still a little bit of orphans and they're not connected. Hmm. And But it's a great retail uh, area because you are in between the North End, Beacon Hill and Charlestown. And those neighborhoods didn't want anything near them. This mm-hmm. neighborhood kind of sits in between and doesn't have as much residences, but they're building and you could just see the opportunity for a flagship retail store where you can go big um, by right. You can go up to 50 plus feet and um, there's not a whole lot of people. They're going to they're going to stop you. So that was that was sort of the and the Boston Garden, of course, as an anchor, along with the you know first or second largest train station in the city in North Station. And, and, you know, as you're describing kind of what makes us retail good, right? It, it's uh, for me, like not knowing Boston, it's kind of, I'm, I'm, uh, it's hard to follow along, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, is that something you saw as a consultant that, that people coming from out of state maybe didn't appreciate the nuances of the local real estate? Yeah, I mean, they're not on the ground. So there, there's definitely that disconnect. Um, and, and again, you know, getting on a plane, getting out to another city, that sometimes takes weeks. These opportunities move in hours and days. So when I got that real estate opportunity, I had about 24, 48 hours to try and lock up that property based wow. on market dynamics, which at the time were were fairly hot. So, you know, you couldn't I couldn't wait for an MSO executive to get on a plane and come out, which would take me about two weeks to try to get them, which is uh, partly the opportunity. Got it. And and that building when it came available was available for sale. It was. They were they were trying to rent it. The owners had a little tiff, so it became a quick short sale. Got it. Got it. So it gave you an opportunity. Uh, and when you say short sale, you mean closing in a short amount of time. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> Just to be clear. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like we need to close in, you know, X amount of time. And it's, uh, you know, I want cash buyers and or equivalent uh, 30 day close. So, yeah. Wow. You, you know, the real estate, a commercial real estate game. Sometimes when you know what you have. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, there were, the sharks were circling. Got it. Got it. No, that's, that's interesting. And, and for people who don't understand 30 day close is like very quick. Yeah. So that's, that's, uh, yeah. So that's something you got to move fast. We had to do structural, we had to do environmental, uh, and, and we had to raise the money. I mean, Abner and I, we, you know, we, we didn't have, uh, a whole lot of funds between us to, to start a company right then and there. So we, we had to put all that together in, in 30 days. So the whole company really starts around this one asset and buying this building, which then you have to carry basically for years and years until you can actually open it up. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, the building was also falling in on itself. So it wasn't, necessarily, <laughs> it wasn't the, uh, the shiny penny down the street. It was, uh, it was old and needed a lot of work. Got it. Okay. So then going on that idea of, you know, being entrepreneurial and having to move fast for deals, then Illinois comes into the picture, right? Yeah, uh, an asset that uh, another, you know, sort of distressed asset in cannabis, Mm -hmm. Uh, Illinois medical market was moving really slow. Uh, A company had two grows in the state and they were trying to offload one to to prop up the other that they were already operational on. It was barely uh, functioning, was around six to seven thousand square feet of operating space in a seventy five thousand square foot shell. And again, that was another 
hey, we have to put money down on a Monday. We will sign the deal on a Friday. Can we put this together? And and uh, it's funny to as we're going through this, this is like a theme for Ascend, right? I mean, getting yeah. deals and, and closing really quickly. And, and then, yeah. you know, in the rear view, it's like they end up looking like really great deals end up being great, really great deals. Yeah. Opportunistic um, and, and not settling for the first thing that can't, comes to us, right? We, we do, again, we get on the planes, we spend the extra time. These things take 20, 30 phone calls. And some people, they don't want to go through all that work, but you have to look for the best assets out there. That means you have to look under every stone. So that has uh, certainly been a hallmark of, uh, of this company and our pursuit of sort of the best assets at the best price. Mm-hmm. And so the facility in uh, Barrie, Illinois, which previously belonged to uh, Revolution, um, you know, you, and that's a beautiful building that you guys have there, right? And, and I think they had actually built out the shell of the building. Yeah, 75,000 square foot shell um, uh, that was, uh, again, about 8,000 square feet internally built out and operating. Got it. So they had a small amount kind of built out internally, but they'd built the shell of the building. Yeah. Um, and I think it was acquired at a pretty attractive price. It was. It was, uh, we'll call it around $20 million. And that includes the, included the grow license. License, facility, and 10 acres of land. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. And so you get that deal and now you're a two-state operator essentially, right? And um, then what do you do next, right? Like, so now in Illinois, you're just going to be a grower. You need some retail. Like, what's the strategy there? Well, just to clarify things, we're actually at that point an operator because at that point in mass, we had collected a couple assets, mm-hmm. uh, but they weren't operational. Here was... Uh, an operational grow that on December, I believe it was December 27th, 2018, we're taking over. Mm-hmm. We hadn't, you know, Abner and I hadn't grown a tomato at that point. So two days after Christmas, you're, you're taking over this, this, uh, this building. Oh yeah. We're me and the, and the grower we hired at the time and a couple other folks got on a plane and, uh, and you know, foolishly we, we flew to Chicago, not realizing that it's a five hour drive yeah. down to Barry, Illinois. Yep. Um, and yeah, we were there for a couple of weeks getting, uh, getting that, that set up and, and learning a lot about the industry. And what, maybe talk to us a little bit about that. You know, you, you do this deal, you raise the money, you close, you get down there. And then, you know, is there like a moment where you're like, oh my God, like, what have we done? Uh, there's a lot of moments like that. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, we, we walked into to that operation and there were wire, they, they had cut wires everywhere. The There was no, they had destroyed every plant because I think they had to, or they mm-hmm. said they did. And uh, the facility was, it was sort of in shambles. And uh, yeah, we had to, they also wouldn't let their employees transfer over. So we had to start over there as well. It was a tough situation, but one where we had a really welcoming town. Mm-hmm. Uh, a welcoming county, and we found a good workforce there, and we started hiring and partnering with the local community uh, in Barry, Illinois, again, which is southern Illinois, closer to uh, uh, St. Louis than it is Chicago. And we found uh, some really good folks, and we have some folks still on the staff there that have been with us uh, for those four years. And that so that facility was seventy five thousand feet, only about ten percent actually built out at the time. And and where is that facility at today? Well, let me go through it. It's actually, it's, it's, I'll do it quickly. Sure. Ju- June or July, I think it was June of 2019, uh, adult use passes in Illinois. Okay. The facility at this point, we're expanding. We're trying to get to around 25,000 square feet uh, of canopy. Mm-hmm. We realize 
okay, adult use is coming to Illinois. It's one of the, it's the largest state east of the Mississippi at this point, you know, 12 plus million people. All right, let's double stack everything. So, so we make the decision to try to be ready for January 1, 2020. Let's double stack the entire facility. So, and, and sorry, just just to explain what that actually means, right? Yeah. Double stacking means you you usually have one level of canopy, and now you're adding and racking racking on essentially on top of it to put a second level of canopy on there, right? But the building wasn't designed for that, correct? Not necessarily, no. I mean, it, it had just enough ceiling height to do it, but you know, kind of. If you ask most growers, they'll tell you probably not. Um, but we wanted to get the canopy in. So uh, we wanted to be ready for those adult use customers come January 2020. So we we changed all of our plans. We added double the HVAC and added the canopy and got to, you know, give or take uh, almost 60,000 square feet uh, at that time uh, of indoor canopy. We have since then added another building uh, in greenhouse, uh, which totals around 100 and you know, 10,000 square feet, give or take. So we're close to 200,000 square feet of building on that property. We added 10 acres. And so now we're 20 acres in almost 200,000 square feet of, of, uh, of structure. Wow. So you went from, you know, essentially 8,000 feet built out to like 200,000 feet built out. That's right. That's right. And uh, we did that uh, and we finished the greenhouse build uh, October of last year. It was a solid um two to three years of construction and, um, you know, construction never, never seems to end at that facility. <laughs> but always a work in progress, right? Yeah, exactly. so, 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 but just to explain to people, you know, the, the decision to, you know, rip out grow rooms and double stack them, that's a pretty gutsy decision, right? Because at that time, I mean, not many other people had ever done that and Ascend had certainly never, ever done that. Yeah. And, and put on top of that, that we were going to do because, you know, we were trying to tight on cash. We were trying to do the top uh, of the of the lights were going to be um, HPS. So your traditional grow lights. Mm -hmm. The bottom was going to be LED, which was at the time, not necessarily, I think, the pick um, of most growers. Now it is now it's been sort of seen as the standard. But at the time we were going to go double stack, which wasn't seen as a standard and two different types of lights in the same room, which certainly was not the standard. Um, but, um, it worked and, uh, we were able to get that canopy operating in time for the adult use market and able to service all the customers, uh, at our stores, which in about the same time we closed on the grow, we closed on our two first operating assets, medical assets, medical stores, one in Springfield, Illinois, and one in Collinsville. Again, Collinsville being right outside of St. Louis. And that Collinsville store has ended up being, you know, one of those flagship crown jewels for the company, right? Great store, uh, about 20 minutes outside of St. Louis. Um, it's, uh, it's a great, great people, great store um, servicing, uh, you know, between one and 2,000 people a day. Wow. And, and, you know, I've heard Abner say, you know, uh, like a, something like $50 million run rate per year at a one store. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the most productive stores, uh, certainly uh, east of the Mississippi, if not in the entire country. And, and the, you know, it's funny talking about it because Ascend, you know, I've been an investor since I think mid-19 or something like that. And, and it's, it's funny to see the growth because um, when adult use hit in, on Jan 1st of 2020, um, 
the, the Ascend's footprint actually wasn't that big in terms of operational assets, right? Like assets that were actually on and, and working. But looking back on it now, it seems like almost that was the right thing to do. It seems like it was actually better to start smaller and, and focus on executing on a smaller footprint and then kind of build your base and expand outwards. That's right. I mean, I, I, again, I'll give credit to Abner on on the focus and keeping our focus on executing small bites at a time, but executing at a high level. Um, you, you can't be all things to all people. It's really hard in this industry. Um, you know, building one, two or three grows at once is just a, it's an enormous undertaking. And so when you talked about those MSOs trying to put flags and maps, I remember thinking, they have to build 12, they have 12 states, they have to build 12 cultivation facilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond the capital, it's just the effort and energy it requires. So I think we did it right. I think it's, you know, go big or go home, get to scale in a small amount of states, but be a top player in those states. And and that's been the strategy and it's been one that we've been successful at. And, and I remember when I was uh, in Illinois and I was like, you know, visiting these different facilities and meeting with these companies, one of my big takeaways was being really actually impressed with with Ascend because, you know, Cresco or GTI or Verano, I mean, Illinois is their home market, right? They started in Illinois in 2013 or 14 or whatever it was and, and built from there. Um, and, and, you know, obviously they're much larger companies as well. Uh, but when you look at who the top players in the state were, um, you, you know, Ascend was clearly there, right? The Ozone brand was one of the top wholesalers, was in basically every dispensary. And yet, the other top players, you know, they'd been there a long time. They were much larger companies. Ascend kind of came out of nowhere. It was like, who are these guys who just randomly bought, you know, a, a distressed facility and yet, and are in, you know, Southern Illinois downstate so far from Chicagoland and yet are seeming to really rack up the numbers and, and have their product all across the state. <laughs> you make it sound so great and easy. Um, <laughs> And generally speaking, uh, it was a lot of fun, but, uh, you know, the plant's a finicky plant. So there were a lot of tough days and tough sure. nights to try and and get to scale and get to where we were trying to get to. But, you know, again, we, we were focusing on the one state, right? We we had longer timelines in our other states and Illinois was where we were able to throw a lot of resources and in focus. And we knew the company could be successful in Illinois it can be successful otherwhere, other places. So that was our focus. That was the, uh, that was the test kitchen for ourselves to be able to, can we grow the plant and can we sell the plant? Um, and you know, that was the proof of concept. So switching gears, right? I mean, somewhere in there, I think maybe in 2020, um, you know, the Ascend used to do these, these quarterly calls, even as a private company. Um, and Abner comes on and says, Hey guys, great news. We've just signed a deal for New Jersey. Right. And at the time it was like, like who, who cares about New Jersey? Right. Like no one talks about New Jersey and uh, you know, it it wasn't a particularly attractive asset. It was in Montclair and you could, you could actually see they, they, the state release these reports every two years and they list all the sales of every company like publicly. And you could go and see that the Montclair store was like not doing particularly impressive numbers. Right. Um, So and then, you know, sure enough, like by the, you know, it takes forever to close the deal and whatever, whatever. And by then we're basically into adult use or getting very close to it. Right. Um, can you talk about that New Jersey deal and how it came together and, and you know, what seemed attractive about it at the time? Yeah, um, it's a great story. The New Jersey deal was a deal that everyone had seen. Right. So because, as you say, the store, there was one store 
in, in one grow. The grow was a couple thousand square feet. They essentially had met the requirement to uh, be licensed by building a very, very small uh, grow. The one store in Montclair was at least well located. It was um, right on uh, Bloomfield, right on the main thoroughfare. So a very good retail area, but a very small store. And the asset was you know, underfunded and I think the owners were coming to terms with the fact that they did not want to do this business anymore and wanted to try and, uh, and and capitalize on all the work and sweat equity they had put in. So everyone had looked at it. We were probably the fifth or sixth MSO at the time to take a look. And at that time, there was just a lot of fatigue and uh, the owners were ready. Um, but we knew where the state was going to head. We You could see the politics shifting. Um, with East Coast states at the time, and um, you know it was a, a great uh, growth strategy for 22 and 23, which is again where we were looking uh, two years ago. Um, it's also an amazing story of you know we signed that deal. We it takes about a year to close, as you said, mm-hmm. um, but we didn't. You know, a lot of people will say, "All right, we'll sign it, we'll close, and I'll think about that business later." You know, Abner and I. I remember getting on a plane with Abner, fly down to Jersey, and it's me and him driving around Route 17 trying to find real estate, real estate, legitimately <laughs> taking pictures of the signs. All right, call that one. Call. We'll meet him right now. And Abner and I, um, you know, found some of the, the the real estate that we're now, you know, either building out or operating out of. Uh, and um, it was, you know, again, it's that. We have a year to close, but we're not going to sit on this business and wait a year. We're going to make this business successful because we're going to do the work now. Right. And and maybe talk a little bit about, um, I think it was the Fort Lee store where there used to be a Staples there when, when you guys found the location. Yeah. Um, another location we're driving. Uh, we had found a, a bank or I think a, maybe a realtor had sent us a bank that was nearby. Bank wanted nothing to do with us. Um, saw the Staples, said, well, let's get someone to cold call the Staples, see if they want to stay there. Um, you know, Staples was in an interesting business time for themselves, or at least the uh, the chain was. And, you know, one of our folks called the Staples and they said, in fact, we're looking to close this store. Would you like to take over our lease in the next six months? Wow. Um, and that Staples in Fort Lee, and you roll off the GW Bridge uh, from Manhattan and you are rolling into our parking lot. Wow. So that just happened to be what dumb luck of you guys being in the area and, and calling staples and just, you know, that kind of aligning. Yeah, it's 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 what we've done in the past. Right. You go to an area and you knock on doors, you make it phone calls on those windows that have the signs in it and you get to know the area, you get to know the locals and, you know, you, you get next thing you know, you're you're looking at the real estate you want. But it, it doesn't doesn't just, I, w- I wouldn't say it's luck. I would say it's uh, certainly, get, again, getting on the plane, getting on the ground and, and doing the work. Got it. And so let's let's talk about, you know, uh, where we are today. Let's talk about New Jersey, right? Uh, tell us about how that market has been. Obviously, people have been waiting for a very long time for that to turn on. Uh, what's going on there on the on the ground level, maybe starting with, you know, kind of the, the opening day of recreational? Interesting day. Um, New Jersey was talking for the last give or take uh, 10 months about this market um, when it was going to open. And, you know, it looked like they were going to try and get to a January 1st start as last year was getting towards Q4. It was very clear the the state wasn't going to hit their deadlines. Mm -hmm. Um, And in their deadlines was this we will set a clock of 30 days. 
And when we set the clock for 30 days, that's when sales will begin 30 days later. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, so this, you know, the winter comes, spring comes, and there was, wasn't a whole lack of clarity. Then I think it was the March meeting where they didn't end up voting to start adult use. And, you know, a lot of the, the existing players uh, were frustrated with the state, but the state was trying to get it and get it right and make sure there was enough supply for medical patients. So um, in a, what I would imagine was, uh, you know, a lot of work for the CRC in New Jersey, they hosted a April meeting, which at the time was not scheduled. Mm -hmm. And they said, all right, 30 days. We talked about that. It's now 11 days. We're going to start in the Bell's shoes, which was, you know, right after 420. So 421, they set the date. We all have 11 days. Most of our packaging had just been approved. Most of the you know infrastructure for the adult use market had literally just been approved. Um, so we were in a, a real, uh, what I would say was a, a sprint to try and get operationally ready, both at the store and at the grow, mm-hmm. make sure we can supply every, every customer and the patients that come with a great experience and all the products that they would want. And 421 came and it was, uh, you know, other than being sort of very quick and there wasn't enough time for, I think, for people to understand what was going on. Mm -hmm. um, It was a glorious day. It was uh, a good day. That was a long time coming. Um, And as we've reported, um, you know, we saw a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of business come through the doors uh, and, you know, plenty of product uh, for all. So, from a, you know, New Jersey, obviously great for the industry, right? Big tailwind, um, clearly not enough stores open yet. Um, how do you see the progression of stores opening for New Jersey going forward? You know, given what we were talking about with local controls and stuff like that, um, do you think it's going to be quick? Do you think it's going to be slow, like looking forward, let's say to the end of the year? Um, I think it'll be I, I hope it'll be quick, right? I think the state did the right thing here. They they haven't done what Illinois has done, which was hold up licensing or you know get caught up in all types of legal quagmires, right? The state has uh, has announced and released enough retail licenses. I do believe that the locals, again, as I said, are being are being uh, probably the gating factor to getting those stores open, along with real estate. Um, but at least the state licenses are the provisional licenses are being released and these people can, you know, execute on a lease, raise funds against the license and try to get open by the end of the year. How many dispensaries do you think we have open by the end of the year? That's a great question. We're at what? 12 right now, I believe. Um, I I don't want to be a prognosticator, but I mean, sub 50 for sure is what I would say. So thinking about New Jersey, right? And and this we've been discussing a lot in, in general in terms of across the industry, we're seeing weaker fundamentals um, across every company. And it seems like the big, one of the big challenges is as these markets mature, they go from being, you know, super high margin, sell everything at a premium price to, you know, normalizing in, in price, right? And starting to fragment or, or bifurcate between premium and value and, and things like that. So, you know, obviously in New Jersey, it's great today, right? But when you look at the structure where you can build, you know, 150,000 feet of canopy and you can only have three stores, um, it feels like there's an imbalance there. Like if everyone built their canopy limit and had three stores, they'd have more product than they could, you know, feed in their stores, right? So I'm just curious how you think about that. Over time, does it just mean the New Jersey market's going to become oversupplied or, or how do you think about it? 
It's a great point. I think, you know, you've been watching the quarterly uh, earnings of all of these companies, including Ascend, where there's pressure on the wholesale business. The states are getting more competitive. And I think it just puts a a premium on right sizing your uh, capital allocation to match your canopy and your uh, your retail and whatever wholesale plans you may have. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you've got to be smart about it. And, you know, here's what I think, though, that is hopefully the best part about it for the customer um, at the end of it all is the quality is going to get better. Hmm. Um, So all of us as companies are looking at this as, well, the best will survive. The best product, the best quality will get the premium, right? And you've seen that from other markets. This isn't a story that is, is, uh, hasn't, you know, been told in other markets, California, Colorado, Oregon, and Washington, mm-hmm. or competitive commoditized markets where there is still a premium for quality indoor flower and mm-hmm. uh, premium edibles, vapes, etc. Um, so that's where I hope it drives. That's where it's driving us. That's where it's driving Ascend to ensure that everything we put in a jar and everything we put uh, our name behind is going to be the best of the best. So, so uh, that's a good point, right? That it's actually good for the consumer and it, it's pushing the co- the companies to, to be better, right? Yep. Um, but I, I guess when we think about um, the future of the industry, is it just inevitable that margins come down and it just becomes a more competitive business and, and these companies just aren't, aren't able to earn what they're able to earn at the beginning of a program? I mean, I, I'll leave that to the finance experts, right? I'm, I'm trying to keep those EBITDA margins as healthy as they can, even sure. while we're trying to scale. But it's, listen, it's getting more competitive. There's more products. There's more uh, companies doing their, you know, the, in mass, there are 90 cultivators and there's a couple hundred stores. Um, it, prices are coming down. If you don't get very good at what you're doing and you're not doing it to scale, Mm-hmm. it'll be harder for you to make money. That's absolutely for sure. But then that that's why it, it helps you to do less, do it better and do it to scale. So on that point, right um, now, like looking back on, on some of these things, does it like, for example, if you were to build your mass grow again today from scratch um, in general, do you look to build things smaller and higher end uh, as, as more, you know, as you predict more supplies coming online or does it make still makes sense to have lots of scale so you have more pricing power. Well, I mean, listen, if we if we knew what we knew now in mass, we'd probably build less. But it also, you're making those decisions three years ago. I mean, right. we made decisions to build mass bigger three years ago when the market was different. And did the mass market get tougher overnight? Yeah, absolutely. It got quicker. It got tougher quicker, for mm. sure. But really what needs to be fixed is, for me at least, is the timelines on Massachusetts and the regulators. They need to do better getting businesses open because it's not just about us. We, we'll, we will survive. But mm-hmm. smaller businesses, family-run businesses, social equity people, they're taking years to get things open and they're losing uh, the needed funds, the investors, and just with the, frankly, the will to continue sometimes. So yeah, it, if I was to do mass again, we, I think we would uh, certainly make a different decision, but um, it's hard to say that when you're making your decisions three years ago. For sure. For sure. Right. And, and things have changed to your point and sometimes they change quite quickly. Um, so, so, so going back to that, right. I, I mean, um, you, you raise a good point there. And it's something I think about all the time is when, when the markets are down, you know, everyone's concerned about capital now, you know, rightfully so. Um, and, and people are, starting to worry about even the big operators, right? The solvency and, and debt and stuff like that. And then that really makes you think, well, what about the small operators? So what are you seeing and hearing at the ground level 
Um, it seems like, you know, if margins are coming down for the big scale players, I mean, the, the smaller players in a more commoditized market must really be getting hurt. Well, you know, Michigan's probably the, a, a good example of that, where there's okay. there's a lot of stores, there's a lot of growers and processors, and the prices are, are coming down where, you know, you can get, it's, it's probably very similar to a Colorado or Oregon market where um, you can get many, many different quality levels of cannabis for, you know, between $600 and $1,200 a pound. Um, and again, it's what's the sorry, sorry six six to twelve hundred is wholesale or at the re- at retail wholesale. Got it. Okay, wholesale. So I mean, if I wanted to source a, a quality, a pretty decent quality pound, I can get it for uh, let's call it twelve to fourteen hundred dollars. You know, the higher end stuff still goes for you know above two thousand a pound, but okay. you know you can you can find a pretty good quality uh, pound of cannabis for fourteen twelve to fourteen hundred dollars in Michigan. But what that does again is what was the cost of capital to the the mom and pops? How did they get open? Was it sweat? Was it uh, you know predatory debt? And and that's really what is driving uh, these businesses to be under the pressure is where do they get their money and how expensive was it for them? And, and one thing I remember Abner saying back in. I think it was 19, right? When the, yeah, it must've been towards the end of 19 when the, when this cycle was kind of replaying itself and everyone was, you know, the sky was falling and everyone was worried about these companies. Um, and they were in a much worse position than they are today, right? I mean, they're, they're way better off today than they were 18 months ago. Uh, but one of the things I remember him saying that stood out to me is the idea that as capital becomes scarce and it dries up, um, it makes building out facilities in this industry a lot harder and that actually extends the runway for margins because, you know, at some point these things turn on, um, but there's just there was less capital around to build them out. Right. So it's it just extends that runway for people who are able to build it out. Is that something you're starting to see today? Um, yeah, I mean, there's yeah, it's a, it's a barrier to entry. Right. It's it's another barrier to entry. You're seeing folks now pause projects. Maybe uh, they're they're thinking differently of their capital allocation. So sure, certainly that's that's the case. And what's going on with, you know, construction costs and timing and and even just labor availability? Across the industry, it is a challenge. Uh, you know, COVID was one driving factor. The post-COVID supply chain issues are another. Construction materials seemingly have leveled out a bit or, or they had at least, you know, as I was looking at it sort of, uh, Q1 of this year, I think okay. maybe tr- inching up a bit, but, um, you know, construction costs have gone up anywhere between 15 and 30% market to market for, for most of the companies that, uh, you know, that I, I talk to on a regular basis. 15 to 30% since when? Uh, since we'll say since COVID started. Okay. That's actually not as bad as I thought it would have been. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're doing things in pretty scale and, and good size. We're trying to use the right contractors. And so we're, we are, and we're, we're trying to uh, buy in bulk, right? So if we're go- going to do uh, five retail stores, we'll, we'll do the purchasing of certain things altogether and, and try to try to uh, again, see some of those savings through, uh, you know, good procurement uh, procedures. Got it. Okay. So again, scale and scale is, is important there and, and, you know, planning ahead and buying in bulk. Um, I, I want to shift gears for a second and talk about the Pennsylvania deal, um, which is a, a CR license, which is a little bit different than, you know, some of the other licenses. Um, and it, it's it's funny, right? Because it it's such a typical Ascend deal where 
everyone is actually complaining about PA if you listen to the calls, right? PA is getting more commoditized. Um, you know, there's there's a slowdown of patient growth and, and people are feeling the pressure in PA now. And then Ascend goes and does a deal in PA, right? And at first blush, you go, why, you know, why do that, right? Everyone's complaining about this market. Um, but actually, again, like I think you guys mentioned, there's a second mover advantage there to getting in now, right? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I think Pennsylvania is a perfect example of where we're looking for an opportunity to enter a market that makes sense for us and do it in a way that uh, is similar to New Jersey and that it's a cheaper cost of uh, a license than you've seen others trade at. And we do have that second mover advantage where we're going to go and we're going to aggressively cite uh, six dispensaries, five of which we can cite anywhere in the state. Uh, and we're going to go get the best locations. Uh, we're going to get the best locations for what we anticipate will be an adult use market uh, sometime in the future, whether it's the very near term or, uh, you know, one to three year term. We are going to cite these locations for with that in mind. And, and uh, they will be uh, productive boxes for us, I think, at some point. So you you've, with the CR license, you get one grow and you get six stores, right? And one one of those dispensaries has to be tied to a certain location, but the other five, you can go anywhere in the state. That's, that's correct. Yes. And what are you seeing when you look at, I think there's like 140 ish dispensaries in PA. What do you see in terms of, um, you know, were they those, those flagship retail sites already, or, or were people born in those old, you know, gen one locations we talked about? What, what's the lay of the land out there? Yeah, I, I think there's um, a number of stores that took, sort of inline shopping malls with limited parking and small square footage to get open and to get operational and take advantage of what a year, year and a half ago was probably the hottest medical market in the country. Um, and so they got open and they got open fairly quickly. Um, you know, I don't think a lot of those stores are, are, are ready to scale to what may be an adult use market in, uh, in, you know, 12 to 24 months. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's, that's where we come in and that's what we're trying to do. But yeah, the current uh, stores there are, you know, what, what I would say are your typical sort of medical store that we see uh, in other markets. And, and by the way, no different than a lot of the New Jersey stores that, um, that are the existing medical stores. And for Ascend, you know, do you, do you kind of go in and get the license and then figure it out? Or have you, do you guys already have some sites in mind or, or some locations? Once we start to identify a market where we're going to, you know, likely do uh, M&A activity, we start looking at sites. So we've been looking at, at Pennsylvania sites for the better part of the last year, trying okay. to make sure that if we do get a license, we will have sites to pair it with. Um, and, 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 you know, that, that gives us a little advantage uh, in terms of the work we're trying to do now, uh, as now we have the license and you know, doesn't, you don't make any money with those stores not open. So our, our hope is that all the work that we did can lead us to those sites, permitting construction and get those doors open and, and productive for us uh, quicker. Got it. And, and uh, so on that, on that point, I mean, I think there was a similar story about New York, right? Where New York, you know, had this great deal with MedMen, then there's this lawsuit, there's all this uncertainty. And one of the big question marks was, how long is this going to take to resolve? Right. And, and what are we, you know, what's the Senate going to lose while this thing is fought out in court? Um, and I think, you know, what Abner was saying was that the, the solution to that was to actually go find an industrial building and go buy an industrial building and, um, you know, start working on the process of, of getting the power and whatnot. And worst case scenario, if, if New York didn't work out, you could always sell the building. 
That's exactly right. Again, premium on industrial sites uh, in the Northeast and probably in most areas of the country right now. Um, and for us, the I, I think the opportunity in New York is uh, as much, you know, having some of the great retail spots that uh, this license has is also being, you know, one of those original 10 licenses where you have uh, Canopy and can provide uh, the market uh, wholesale products and, and do so, you know, on day one. Um, so for us, getting up and running for day one was important. Identifying the right site that we could be ready uh, quickly was, uh, it's, it's, it's often what we try to do. And, and it was no different in New York. And that was the goal. So, so Frank, as we're getting to the end here, there's a couple of things I want to make sure that, you know, I pick your brain on. And, and the first is, you know, what are we seeing from the cannabis consumer coming into the dispensary? Um, there's obviously a lot of talk about inflation, right? And how it's impacting people's wallets. And particularly now, I mean, even just in the last little bit, gas has gone absolutely nuts, right? So can you talk about what you're seeing at the store level from people coming in and, and how it might be impacting buying decisions? Yeah, I, I, I think, um, you know, you're, you're still seeing and probably you're seeing more of now uh, is, is your THC shopping. So how can I get the best bang for my buck? How can I, you know, come in in this store, get a high quality product uh, for the cheapest possible price, right? There's value shoppers uh, that are, are coming. And it's, you know, it's why we introduce Simply Herb to the market so we can get high quality product at a lo- everyday low price. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, there's certainly price sensitivity due to, uh, you know, inflation, the general economic uh, sensitivities we're seeing. And the consumers are coming in looking for value and they want to uh, get that every day. And what's the split in general between people who are going to shop the value bucket versus people who are going to shop the top shelf bucket? Interesting. Um, you know, the people who come in and and, and, and they get their, um, you know, their eighth for $30 are, are certainly folks who uh, probably come in one, maybe once a week. Um, yeah. I, I tend to see the people who come once a month and load up on a larger basket, the people who are, you know, tend to buy more premium products and it's your weekly, every two week shopper that, that, you know, frankly, our, you know, best customers are the ones that are, are looking for, uh, the value product. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy that we can provide them with, um, you know, really high quality cannabis, uh, with a good turf profile and THC for, uh, under $30 in, in most of our markets. And so just just to dig in, though, on the, on the split, like from a dollar perspective, just in rough terms, what percentage do you think of revenue is derived from the top shelf versus the bottom shelf? Great question. I'm not sure I can answer that. It, it's it's probably 80, 20 or more. You know, when I say bottom shelf, I mean, I think our customers are coming in, you know, once a week, once every 10 to 15 days and, and they're doing their shopping. And, and that is your average cannabis consumer who wants to relax, ease their, their stress or, mm-hmm. or have a good time on a, on a Friday night. Uh, you know, I think that's the majority of our business. Got it. Okay. Fair enough. And, and so something else I want to um, ask you about is, you know, from the, the investment side and the capital market side, right? I mean, uh, investors are understandably worried, right? They've, they've suffered a lot of pain from the share prices, um, over the last year or so. And uh, I think in markets like this, people often, there's a, there's a flight to quality, right? So the large MSOs that everybody knows have been around a long time. Um, you know, their, their stocks are obviously very cheap. Um, and 
people, you know, have less of an inclination to play with smaller operators when, you know, the Veranos of the world are, are trading where they're trading, right? Uh, maybe, could you talk a little bit about why should investors be interested in Ascend, um, you know, as opposed to maybe some larger names? Like, what, what, what do you think investors should be excited about in that, in the opportunity? Sure. Um, I think we've executed um, so far. We have a little more execution left in front of us. And, you know, our assets are as good, if not better than any of the other operators. So as we've continued to turn on assets, we have continued to, you know, take those stair steps and, and get to the type of uh, company we want to be. And the asset story that we told is now, um, you know, it's, it's, it's exactly unfolding as I think we said, which is we have the best assets. We're going to turn them on. And as we turn them on, uh, we will be able to show investors, uh, you know, the success. And I, and I think that's, that's exactly what we're doing. I think it's exciting too to to have the stair step stair step function from a smaller base on a smaller company, right? Like New Jersey, the impact of New Jersey is going to be felt a lot more on a six hundred million dollar company um, than a five billion dollar company, right? Or or whatever you know whatever it shakes out to. But the the base of revenue is relatively small, or compared to other people in terms of what will turn on with New Jersey and New York and and et cetera, right? Um, but I, I'm curious. When you look at these sort of northeast markets, um, you know New York, for example, do you, how much do you worry about, uh, you know, where the program is headed? You know, they're issuing all these hemp licenses. Like, uh, how do you think about that? Do you adjust your your strategy at all in terms of canopy size or something like that? Yeah, that's no, that's right. I think uh, all these markets are. Um, you you got to make sure you right size it. You spend your capital wisely. New York. Uh, is one that um, uh, it's very unclear where the retail will end up when they will be we we will be allowed to go to adult use uh, and when they will stop issuing licenses for cultivators both hemp and and other um, there's just a lot of unknown so that worries me I also think the you know the fact that if you walk through much of New York right now you can walk in and get an eighth of cannabis for forty five dollars from stores. Um, they're selling it on the street. They're selling it in gray and black market stores. It probably looks a lot like California has uh, over the last couple of decades. Um, so that, I think, worries me just as much as, you know, what the government's going to do. It's what they're not going to do. And are they going to shut down some of these operators? And so does Ascend decide when you see that, do you go, hey, maybe let's build smaller canopy? I think we'll certainly, yeah, we, we will certainly adjust based on what government does but these are conversations that uh, we have every day because right sizing the business right sizing your investment is it's it's the most important thing we can do with our investor capital right now got it frank coming to the end here um what are what are kind of the key things that you know that the ascend team thinks about day in day out in terms of you know being successful going forward um Lately, it's, you know, it's been quality. It's been um, how we protect our uh, capital and make sure that if we're spending a dollar, it's going towards returning a uh, dollar or more. Um, so, you know, for me, it's how do we, we continue to grow, get better at what we're doing, have high quality and, uh, and protect the capital. And at the retail store, it's it's really been the same and it's always going to be the same. It will be, can we offer you the best experience, selection, and price uh, to every customer that comes through the door? 
So experience, selection, and price. Some um, that's I guess that's like what the retail holy trinity there. Yeah, that's what it is for us. Yeah, exactly. We we want to make sure you can get every product you want for the best price within the best experience, and we think we're delivering that at our. our, our at all of our retail locations right now. But that's the goal, right? Open up more doors and make sure every customer has that opportunity. Got it. Got it. Okay. Love, love that perspective. So Frank, uh, I really appreciate you joining us. Um, I'm going to leave you here with the last word of any final thoughts you'd like to share for people with regards to Ascend. Um, well, I, listen, I want to thank you for your time today. I appreciate uh, being able to go through all this. I have no idea what half of what I said. Uh, <laughs> it's been such a, a nice long talk here. Um, but generally speaking, uh, you know, I want folks uh, send to know that, you know, we're trying to, to grow and sell the best quality cannabis. And uh, we want everyone to uh, to enjoy the product uh, safely and, uh, and and have a good time. I love that. Enjoy the product and have a good time. I think that's a, a great note to end on. Frank Perullo, Chief Strategy Officer, President and Co-Founder of Ascend Wellness. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Until next time. This podcast is a general communication and entertainment being provided for informational purposes only. It is educational in nature and not designed to be a recommendation for any specific investment product, strategy, plan, feature, or other purposes. Any examples used in this podcast are generic, hypothetical, and for entertainment purposes only. None of Cannabis Investing Network or its affiliates are suggesting that the listener or any other person take a specific course of action or any action at all. Communications such as this are not impartial and are provided in connection with advertising and marketing of products and services. Prior to making any investment or financial decision, an investor should seek individualized advice from, from a personal financial, legal, tax, and other professional advisor that take into account all of the particular facts and circumstances for an investor's own situation. By listening to this communication, you agree with the intended purpose described earlier. Opinions and statements of financial market trends that are based on current market conditions constitute our judgment and are subject to change without notice. We believe the information provided here is reliable, but should not be assumed to be accurate or complete. The views and strategies described may not be suitable for all investors.